Payers are making it harder to access drugs. Patients are shouldering a larger share of costs while manufacturers sponsor programs to help. It's a vicious cycle that can't continue as it is. Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access? Hi, Scott. How are you? Hey, Mark. I'm doing great. How about you? Oh, I'm doing great. Excited about today. Today's a bit of a home game for me. We get to talk about Washington. As you know, I live right outside of Washington, D.C., so great topic. Really excited to have our guest, Lance Grady from Avalier. For full disclosure, I've known uh, Lance for many years. He has been a consultant to us at various points, but he is a real expert. And so when it came time to understand what's going on in Washington, obviously he was at the top of the list. And so we're thrilled to have Lance on board. Yeah, me too. I would just add, I've worked with Lance. My teams have worked with Lance and his teams as well over time and his broader organization, Avalier as well, which as you know, is a real stalwart, I'll say actually, in the, uh, particularly in the policy arena, but in other areas related to pricing and access as well. Yeah, I totally agree. But as I need to do to uh, keep the lawyers happy, I do need to say, tell the disclaimer, which is the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co-hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of sponsors or any of its affiliates. Good. Now we all feel better. <laughs> all right. Now we get to move on to the main course. Lance, we're thrilled. So welcome aboard, Lance, and thanks for joining us today. Very excited to be here, Mark Scott. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, you bet. I think our listeners are pleased as well. Mark, you mentioned last time that you know as we kind of move to some of the more topical subject matters here recently, copay accumulators and maximizers, notably, in a recent episode. That was a top interest uh, that we were getting feedback on from the audience. And then this, obviously, is another one as well. Everyone is keenly interested in what's going on in Washington generally as it relates to drug pricing and access, and then obviously more specifically with the uh, elements in the Inflation Reduction Act related to that. I totally agree. And so let's kick it off. And so, Lance, one of the things that Scott and I do with all of our episodes as we give a chance for the our guests to give us a brief description of your career journey and your background and how you got to where we are today, your role that you have today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Scott. To all those out there, my name is Lance Grady. I'm currently head of Avalier's Market Access Practice. As Scott said, Avalier Health, based here in Washington, D.C., is a healthcare consultancy that faces all stakeholders that are vested in the U.S. healthcare marketplace, whether that be market access strategy, which I lead alongside our robust policy practice, and then a newly formed evidence and strategy practice. Avalier also does some due diligence and buy side, sell side as well in a small but mighty financial services outfit as well. While we don't necessarily lobby or we don't necessarily give legal advice, we certainly understand legislative strategy, regulatory strategy, and what that means for market strategy and today's discussion, talking a little bit about access. I would just say that access has been at the core of my career. It is an area that has long been very critical to me to be engaged in personally. I learned U.S. healthcare by working as a health system consultant for Cardinal Health many, many years ago. And I always tell people that I mentor that if you want to learn the U.S. healthcare market, figure out how the drug dollar and data flows in and around a hospital. It can be very challenging, uh, but that sort of laid a nice foundation. Spent a number of years in industry, working in various roles in reimbursement, patient services, patient strategy, drug pricing, access, and then, of course, CMS work. And in Avalier, I lead a very vibrant team, very successful practice. And as you can imagine, given today's discussion, we've been very busy as this long reach of the Inflation Reduction Act is shaping not just traditional aspects of healthcare, but maybe even many, many decisions by many vested stakeholders for years to come. So with all that in mind, I know we've got a lot to discuss today, which is great. And I'm going to suggest we dive right in. And maybe before jumping into the details of the IRA as it relates to drugs, let's start with a more general conversation about how decisions in D.C. are made, how they're impacting patients today. What's going on? It's certainly a vibrant time. I think we all know that we're on the heels of the public health emergency and the decision to sort of rescind that PHE has contributed to some 
challenges, particularly within certain states that have not necessarily expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And so you've got a lot of Medicaid patients right now that are going through redeterminations, disruption, and coverage. And so currently and over the next few months, all those that are interested in patients maintaining Medicaid benefits are going to be addressing this, whether that be through politics and the vote, or whether that be through lobbying and influence, or whether that be through patient services and investments by manufacturers who are looking at some rather drastic disruption in in coverage today as those flexibilities through the PHE are sunsetting in many states. Do you have a sense overall, Lance, some of the most recent projections about the number of folks that may be impacted, disenrolled? Yeah. I mean, 10 to 20 million come to mind as a nice, safe range. And certainly, I think state by state is, is going to be very critical. The other ways that we're working with our clientele is also think about this from a disease state perspective and or how do you think about various incidents of disease in a Medicaid patient population and what does that mean? And this is not just access to drug, but also access to network and access to care. So that is a very real sort of dynamic that's unfolding right now. I think another very interesting, to stick with Medicaid, I think another very interesting and perhaps quiet piece of legislation that is now starting to get more national attention is what's called the elimination of the AMP cap or the average manufacturer cap price. This too goes back to the Affordable Care Act, as many of you know, and a bit of a negotiation to get that law passed under the Obama administration. But protection on the AMP cap, protection for manufacturers on the AMP cap to not have to pay a certain penalty above 100% of a price threshold, that sunsets 1231 of this year. So in the next six months, you will see some immediate pricing actions and maybe even some actions down within the channel in terms of drug supply on how certain products move to patients to perhaps steer clear of or to mitigate or to minimize the AMP cap penalty. Certainly, this was at the core of some of the decisions arrived at by the insulin manufacturers and other therapeutic areas where pricing actions above CPIU and or additional rebates to components that sort of get to the calculus of your AMP or your average manufacturer price, you could be looking at certain drugs, certain disease states, certain manufacturers are going to have to almost pay for or pay state Medicaid as those products stay on formulae and are are utilized in 2024. So a very real sort of, while a wonky part of our U.S. healthcare market, a very real thing that is going to shape how manufacturers and states negotiate formulae for Medicaid here in the coming years. It is an example of both how complicated things are and how often there are unintended consequences as well. But just make sure we're all tracking here. This is the notion that manufacturers pay price increase penalties back to Medicaid when they take price increases on their products in excess of uh, yearly inflation. And those accumulate over time through the years while the product is on the market and taking price increases. And historically, they've been capped at 100%, essentially, that the manufacturer would not pay more back in rebates than the total value of the medicine. And now that cap's being lifted raising the specter of manufacturers actually paying Medicaid for the use of their medicine. Have I summarized that about right? Very clear. And I think the other thing to add to that, Scott, is, and it's important and most of this audience knows, but you only set one price in the U.S. market. You're not setting a Medicaid list price and you're not setting a Medicare list price or you're not setting a commercial insurance list price. And so the decisions that manufacturers are going to arrive at in terms of a pricing decision are not done in a vacuum. And certainly the insulin manufacturers that have just recently lowered price had a bit of a headwind to that decision alleviated with some of the early components of the IRA essentially covering insulin and Medicare Part D to a flat copay. And so now as you look at other disease states similar to diabetes or insulin that may, as as Scott shared, be facing sort of this pay for each unit or each prescription covered by a state Medicaid, you know, you're thinking about other diabetes drugs, perhaps respiratory, perhaps pulmonology, perhaps cardiovascular disease. These are sort of the therapeutic areas where manufacturers are going to have to make this decision on a pricing action to mitigate some of this 
rebate penalty to states, that pricing decision then becomes affected in Medicare Part D and or commercial insurance and how patients access medicines through those insurers as well. Let me make sure I'm tracking here again. So then one reason to think about dropping list prices then is to reset for this dynamic so that you, the manufacturer be less likely to have to pay in excess of the cost of the medicine in the rebate. And so we've seen a couple of examples of that's maybe been a contributor to decisions to do that around insulin. There may be others coming, you're projecting as this regulation goes into effect. Now, for that to work for the manufacturers, then outside of the Medicaid book of business, then they would also have to lower the rebates, some commensurate amount to keep their net pricing the same. Otherwise, if the rebates remain 50%, let's say, and the list price just comes down, the net prices changes and just creates another profit squeeze, I'll say, for the manufacturers. Again, back to the complexity and unintended consequences. In my mind, it's another example of the system we have that has created all these incentives for the high price hidden rebate, you know, that doesn't get back to patients, unfortunately, too often, uh, model. And in some reflects, you know, it kind of strikes me a, a lower price with lower rebates and ideally with a little more transparency around that might not be all bad. I think a lot of what we're seeing in Washington today, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about what's even further down the road beyond IRA, but even tucked within the Inflation Reduction Act, this idea that CMS would need to negotiate a price and that negotiated price would then become the basis for which a patient's cost share is based upon. And that is certainly at the core of some of the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit reform. That decision to arrive at a lower price and then mandate that a Part D plan cover that negotiated drug could accomplish almost exactly what you're describing, Scott, which is this lower actual gross price with minimized rebates forces sort of an integrated payer to focus on the budget and or the gross spend rather than say maybe the net spend. Now, there are a lot of caveats or disclaimers to that. As you know, we know that Part D health plans are also going to take on a tremendous amount of change and liability with this new Part D benefit design, which I know we'll talk about here in a second which is where now seniors or Medicare eligible patients can now have an out-of-pocket cap on their prescription benefit, which is very positive for patients, but also will come with an extraordinary amount of increased financial liability for the plans that offer those prescription benefits. And so Part D plans are looking at how these manufacturers are approaching pricing decisions because of Medicaid penalty and also waiting and anticipating to see how these manufacturers are thinking about what are those pricing decisions and the corresponding rebates mean to perhaps mitigate or indemnify or offset some of the liability that Part D plans are going to take on when we think about the next year's key entry of a Washington-based drug policy. So you've got Washington drug policy hitting the market today with insulin. You've got the alleviation of the flexibility in the Medicaid expansion, which is disrupting sort of access. You've got the AMP cap in beginning in 24. And then as you all know, as we start to think about the Part D cycle, many, many interested stakeholders in wanting to see what CMS is going to say about the 2025 Part D bid and how that is going to become implemented certainly by January 125, but let's keep in mind we're in an election year next year and you've got a number of sort of milestones or markers through 24 that the Democrats are going to point to as key, key provisions to lower patient out of pocket and improve prescription drug benefits for beneficiaries. So Mark, you've very graciously been patient and allowed Lance and me to do kind of a deep dive in an arcane set of topics around, you know, drug pricing and mandated rebates and all that. Let's get into the RAA in a second here. But before that, are there any other more general topics about things going in on in DC these days that are on your mind that you'd like to ask Lance? If I could, let me just jump in here, Lance. I want you to go up just one level, right? We have hundreds of listeners around the country. We have 
people from all different stakeholders, including patient groups and people that are less wonky than the two of you. So I think it's important for you, if you could, to sort of talk about the fact that in what can Washington do, right? People think of Washington. I think of it as two major areas. Help me out here. But one is legislation. And you've talked about the ACA and the IRA and others. So legislation is one thing that Congress can do. But then there's also what CMS and other agencies can do. Can you just sort of help sort of just start with what are the big levers that Washington pulls as it relates to drug pricing and ultimately patient access? Sure. Well, prior to the Affordable Care Act and the creation of the Innovation Center, which is a part of CMS, most of Washington's authority was predicated upon legislative activity that would then pave the pathway for CMS and or FDA or states as an implementation body, maybe more so than a governing body. However, in the Affordable Care Act, there was some broad authority assigned to the executive branch and the Secretary of Health with the creation of the Innovation Center. We've seen both parties, while occupying the White House and or various chambers of Congress, affect change or test change through that Innovation Center. But what we're talking about today is far more reaching than just a model or a test or uh, pursuing ways in which we can think about healthcare reform, drug pricing reform, et cetera. And so with the Inflation Reduction Act becoming the law of the land, CMS is now instructed by a very detailed legislative text to affect meaningful change in drug pricing, prescription drug affordability in particular for Part D beneficiaries for Medicare seniors. I think it's really important for us to understand that there are really sort of in ink text on some parts of the IRA, regardless of where we may be in an election cycle again next year, ironically with maybe the same two candidates that we were four years ago, we won't go down that path, but we're sort of in a position where we're likely to see some of that legislative text hold. And now CMS is effectuating that through rulemaking. And so Mark, maybe I think that is a better place to start, fair challenge to pull us up a level. And that's sort of where we sit. The IRA has passed. We know that the president has signed it. We are now down the channels of implementation with CMS and others. And everyone is awaiting CMS rulemaking in the various sort of tenets of the IRA. And so that is sort of where we sit today. And if I could on that, let's talk about patients, right? We have, what, 330 plus million people in the United States what most of what Washington can directly impact are government-funded programs. That's correct, right? They can CMS through Medicare, Medicaid, government-sponsored uh, healthcare programs for whether it's DOD or any agency, veterans benefits, other things like that. What is the impact of Washington on the private market? Well, prior to ACA, probably other than ERISA as a legislation, very little. But let's keep in mind the essential health benefits and sort of the standard benefit designs, the standard that has come forth through the ACA. The Affordable Care Act extended Washington's reach in many ways into commercial insurance as well. You know, right now on the Hill, as we speak, while it may not be impacting patient access today at point of care, whether that point of care be at pharmacy or hospital outpatient department or at a private clinic, there is a lot of conversation in Washington right now about pharmacy benefit management reform and what could be accomplished to sort of curb the role of the PBM in effectuating the prescription drug benefit. And that prescription benefit is not for Medicare or Medicaid, but that is this idea of how do you bring about PBM reform either through the ACA in a standalone legislation or maybe even to address ERISA what can be the appropriate role of a PBM integrated with a health plan? And is there any federal sort of regulation on that market in addition to all of the other federal markets that, or the traditional markets that you described? So 
Washington's reach is growing and growing substantially. But let's keep in mind, it was a Democratic administration that chose to bring about health care reform through the Affordable Care Act through managed care. And we've not seen this movement for, you know, Medicare for all or universal fee for service payer. We've not seen any sort of components of that in a Senate controlled, Democratic controlled Senate or in a Democratic controlled White House. And so while we're thinking about reform on drug pricing, benefit design, it's all still going through a managed care vehicle, which I think is important. And as you move that through a managed care vehicle, that's going to create other sort of perspectives as to do we need other regulation for those managed care vehicles. And one of those, Mark, right now, again, while not impacting how you access your pharmacy benefit today, there are certain experiences that are occurring through pharmacy benefit. You guys covered this in your last podcast, accumulators, maximizers, copay adjustment programs. That's one of the pieces of many, many ideas in Congress today as to how do you think about broader PBM control. And so you create the vehicle and the dependency on the vehicle of managed care. And so doing that 10, 12 years later, you now are starting to see other regulation come about to try to sort of coordinate that or at least sort of provide you know, reform to those managed care entities. That's excellent. That's exactly, again, if you're coming from the patient perspective, right, what you've just described is really important, which is that a lot of the control that Washington has historically had is, has been government programs. The ACA basically got their foot in the door to impact private plans through the Medicare, as you said, through the managed care programs. And that framework now with legislation that has either happened or pending has started now to have a waterfall effect on potentially patient access in the private market as well. So there's times where they're going to have a very specific sort of impact on patients through things like insulin and what patients are going to pay. And then there's going to be other things where they're going to put a carrot out there or a penalty. I I don't want to call it a guardrail or whatever, but things like you described, like the AMP cap, which is they don't want to control the free market. They don't want to take over healthcare, but they want to make sure that they have something in there that helps provide an impact so that patients are able to get access to drugs. Is that how it's looked upon? I would challenge your two statement. This idea of patient access to drug may or may not be the intended consequence by the IRA or by CMS. And I say that because this moved through legislation. So this had to be budget neutral at best or had to create savings for the federal government. In creating savings for the federal government, you are going to look at affecting change that in some cases, if you squeeze here on pricing, drug pricing and on savings, you may cause a problem with access over here. I think the intent is to cap known and predictable patient cost share which is why in the Medicare Part D components of the IRA, we do have a $2,000 out-of-pocket cap. We do have a smoothing provision, which if at point of open enrollment, you as a Medicare beneficiary are shopping and you see that you can not just look at $2,000 out-of-pocket immediately or subject to your cost share, that you could elect almost like a monthly payment of smoothing that over time, These are two big wins for patients and two big wins for the affordability side of patients. The access side for patients, I think remains to be seen, Mark, where that access is going to still be determined and effectuated through the benefit by the managed care organization. And so at a time in which Part D plans are taking on all of these extra costs with perhaps less of a safety net or subsidy from the government, and also capping patient costs, payers are becoming payers in IRA Part D redesign. And with that, health plans, Part D plans, PBMs, they are going to want the full tools necessary afforded to them for utilization management, formulary management. And so that dynamic, I think, remains to be seen in terms of 
do we see the aperture of access decrease while the affordability is increasing? Yeah, this is an important point. Let's tease this out just a little bit if we can. So the good news is $2,000 out-of-pocket cap for the Medicare beneficiaries and a chance to smooth out some of their patient cost sharing. But also in addition to that, the government is becoming the backstop for spending in a declining portion of the overall cost, and the plan is on the hook for more. I think the manufacturers actually picked up some exposure as well, but importantly here, the plan is on the hook for more of the total cost. And so your hypothesis then is that given that, they're likely actually, if anything, to be more aggressive in terms of formulary and utilization management perhaps than they have been. That is correct. And I think health plans are going to look at this in a two-stepped fashion. The first step is the first or the second component of IRA. The first component, just to be comprehensive for our audience, is the inflationary rebate penalties that are now in effect based, again, upon pricing. I think that has less of an impact on patient access. So we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about that. But if you put that first one aside, because we're focused on Washington's influence on access, I think to get to how patient access in Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit is going to be affected, these health plans are looking at it as a two-step sort of dynamic. Number one, is this idea of the liability change absent the government subsidy. And yes, to your point, Scott, the manufacturer is taking on some of that also, but the plan liability increases by 400% in the catastrophic phase of Part D. And that is a a very real number. 90% of volume in Medicare Part D is generic, as we know, but that remaining 10% is going to account for the majority of the spend And in fact, 1% of the volume in Medicare Part D counts for about 50% of the spend. And so what is occurring in that catastrophic phase in therapeutic areas where you've got biologics, self-administered, molecular diagnostic-driven, oral oncolytics, these are the areas where the plan expenses is going to increase. And so they're looking at that sort of liability as how do they manage that from a cost perspective? How do they manage that from a offering a premium for patients that are now going to have such a rich benefit? And so they're looking at it not only on the actual drug utilization and spend side, but they're also looking at it on the premium side. Because keep in mind inside IRA, there is some premium stabilization or premium protection for patient access at the point of enrollment as well, which is also important. Then I think the next step for Part D plans is looking at what CMS is going to do. So in addition to the Part D benefit changing, you now have the federal government negotiating price in a very meaningful way. And in particular, probably more meaningful in self-administered Part D drug than you do in physician-administered. The nine-year sort of window of exclusivity before becoming eligible for negotiation, many manufacturers have cried afoul of that that CMS, you're giving four extra years of exclusivity to a biologic, but not a small molecule, when the science and or the route of administration is moving towards self-administered and the patient not having to ambulate, that dynamic of a nine-year versus 13-year in terms of how CMS decides to negotiate a Part D drug or a Part B drug is a very real challenge. And so for Part D plans, they're thinking about all of this liability shift that we just talked about. And as Mark said, that seesaw between access and affordability. And then the very next year, their top 10 drugs for their spend has their price negotiated. And then they have to figure out how to take that new negotiated price and reset a new formulary in 2026 off of that. The math is challenging. And we think it's a two-step process for Part D plans, which to your point, Scott, we think that's going to cause them to really think about that aperture of access and narrow formularies in a very real way. If I could, though, Lance, help me understand and help our listeners understand when a patient group sends a contingent to Washington to lobby, what's going on sort of today with potential legislation? You mentioned the PBM reform, others. What are some of their key talking points for the patient groups what are they advocating for in terms of changes on in current legislation and what's going on there? 
One of the things that we've not talked about yet is patient access to care from a network perspective. And this administration is very much focused on equitable access, regardless of if you're rural or urban, or depending upon your race or demographics. One of the very real sort of causes that we think is important, in particular for the physician-administered advocacy groups, is this idea of how, and this is where there's a partnership between provider advocacy and patient advocacy on the ability for me to see the doctor that I want to see through my benefit. And so narrowing of networks has been a growing concern. And whether that be your Medicare Advantage enrollment that has, as you both know, has started to really hone in on coordinated provider networks and like a Medicare Advantage HMO type of a benefit. The other is in commercial network. And so one of the unattended consequences of IRA will be the consolidation of care. And so this is a very real sort of message in the cancer advocacy and the autoimmune advocacy that you will be able to access care, not just access your prescription drug. The other real focus area right now is the affordability in the commercial pharmacy benefit. And I think that is driving a lot of the awareness and activity in some of the potential PBM reform that's being discussed. And kudos to both of you for having a deep dive on accumulators and maximizers. But having your high deductible health plan or having your deductible reset or having that which you think you are contributing to reset is very concerning for patient advocacy groups. And it is the combination of a more open choice formulary and an open and choice formulary that is more transparent because now that veil of transparency that sometimes has been unseen between the PBM and its health plan or the PBM and its pharmacy network, that transparency veil is also clouding what's occurring between the member and their pharmacy benefit now in many of these programs. And so I think it's two areas, Mark. It's more transparency and understanding how my benefit can be more predictable and what is occurring between PBMs and health plans on the patient out of pocket at the pharmacy counter. And then in the physician administered side or in the broader sort of patient access side outside the prescription drug benefit, it's around the solvency of networks that I think are going to be a really key focus area now and in the coming months. You've mentioned the aim to have new negotiated lower price serve as the benchmark for the calculation of the patient's cost share at the pharmacy. Is there a mechanism to make that happen today or is there one emerging? How would that occur as part of the transaction? Great question, Scott. And so as CMS steps in to negotiate this price, today in Medicare Part D, the patient's cost share is based upon the payment rate between the plan and the pharmacy. It's called the allowable. That is going to move to what the text calls the MFP, the maximum fair price. And so if a drug's payment rate is cut in half from, say, a list price-based proxy to a new negotiated, that has real meaningful benefit to the patient, without a doubt. How CMS arrives at that, I think, is in your question, is a little opaque right now. And we are all waiting for final guidance from CMS as to how this negotiation process will unfold. And so why this matters for those advocates today that are here listening because of patient access, we're going to know the top 10 drugs that are on this first list. And you may say, well, heck, that's not till 2026, right? But we're going to know that top 10 drug list in September. Then fast forward about six months as we get into the election year in the spring of 24, we're going to know the pricing of those products. And that's going to be known before the 25 formulary is set. And that's also going to be known before the presidential election is arrived at. 
And with that is going to come a new price for the top 10 prescription drugs in the Medicare Part D benefit. So the knowing of it is pretty well spelled out, but the how the price is being arrived at, Scott, is opaque. Some are challenging this in the courts because there are some components in the regulatory guidance that came out from CMS that believe do not create transparency, is requiring a certain level of data and documentation that may not even be necessary to establish a price. And because CMS has said they are going to steer clear of these annual adjusted price benchmarks, there is no formula for how CMS has said they're going to arrive at assigning a price. And so that is causing some consternation amongst manufacturers today who are getting ready to prepare to negotiate with CMS. But it has real meaning to all of us that are patient advocates because the price that's arrived at, say, in heart failure or breast cancer or rheumatoid arthritis for some very well-known brand name drugs today, that could become a new pricing standard for not only Medicare, but maybe other markets. And it could also become a potential price benchmark for therapeutic equivalents to those products which I think is also a very interesting concern from an access perspective. Could that also then influence or change, or is there another type of any other legislation or any other change at CMS impacting potentially 340B? There are several people concerned that one of the byproducts of IRA, while its intent was to improve patient affordability, the calculation of the negotiated price, the MFP, has a direct impact on your market's best price. Your market's best price can also be your 340B price. And so the purchase price of 340B for negotiated drugs will go lower. The reimbursement for those products, depending upon if it's a pharmacy benefit or a medical benefit, it might be a topic for another discussion. But what I think is very clear is that this will likely be a catalyst for 340B point of care, whether that be dispensing pharmacy, contracted pharmacy, or perhaps maybe even hospital-owned physician clinic or hospital outpatient department. And so the 340B dynamic as a byproduct of recent drug pricing legislation starts to then form the question on the first point we made about what are stakeholders worried about today is what are the longer term consequences? You improve my affordability, but in improving my affordability, have you narrowed my formulary? Have you narrowed my access to care? Will I still be able to see my private practice physician? Or will we start to see what we saw 25, 30 years ago, which is an accelerated sort of physician practice acquisition by 340B eligible health systems. Many people predict that that is a byproduct of Washington's activity of late with the IRA. Well, we're already seeing it. I mean, that's already started. So these health systems are buying the drug at a 340 price, but they're, they're getting the suburban commercial patient and charging the full commercial price. So they're making a ton of money there. So from your point of view, Lance, let's look to the future a little bit. What are some of the things that you might see coming out of Washington? You mentioned specifically between now and the presidential election, but if you look out another, let's say another, another cycle, let's say another four years after that, what might Washington be able to do over time? Well, the innovation lobby, those that are focused on the science, the medicine, the breakthrough, the biopharmaceutical lobby, and even some of those that might be more affiliated with the NIH and or the breakthroughs in clinical development are going to really lean in on parts of the IRA. And can that be affected through amendment via legislation? Or can that be affected through pressure to a new administration to perhaps stand up CMS with a different sort of regulatory authority than maybe the CMS appointed Secretary of Health today, okay? Or the President appointed Secretary of Health today. So what that means is 
this period of market exclusivity of a nine year for an oral compound is causing decisions in biopharmaceutical development all the way back upstream at the point of what is my route of administration? Do I want to try to have my molecular entity be more focused in a biologic vehicle or a biologic delivery mechanism? Do I stay with an oral product? How do I think about my indication sequences differently? Do I start to target disease states that are not necessarily Medicare disease states with high incidence of disease and high costs and complex elderly patients? So these are the byproducts of the thinking brought about by the IRA. And so what will be a very core focus area is making sure that the biopharmaceutical lobby brings to attention sort of these longer reaches of the IRA that could curb decisions on pipeline investment, product commercialization, go-no-go decisions and investment of a product. We have seen a couple of lawsuits form already. We've seen a lot of public opinion on what this may do to thwart innovation At the core of this is still science and medicine. The vehicles for which we bring scientific breakthrough today is largely driven by the pharmaceutical industry and many times in in partnership with NIH and others and academia. Expect some core around science and innovation and medicine. Expect an advocacy group to form around that core, Mark. I think that's a very real sort of focus area. And then the other would be this idea of affordability and the sort of dynamics of affordability. You're going to post the ACA, as you both know, as we all know, we've seen an extraordinary increase in patient out of pocket. We've seen the proliferation of high deductible health plans. We've seen the exchange market not really address affordability and also perhaps contribute to how employer-sponsored insurance has caused problems for patient affordability. All of those are going to create like a stacked bar of problems and affordability when you have your health insurance through your employer. But once you turn 65, you go to a $2,000 oop cap, right? And so now you're thinking about as we see an extrapolation of enrollment into Medicare Part D as our country ages, is the problem going to be waiting for care at age 65 because of the richness of IRA? Or will you start to see a further movement into access and affordability into maybe perhaps addressing some of the ACA components of benefit design, PBM reform, transparency, and then you know the holy grail of protection of employer-sponsored benefits, ERISA. We never thought we'd start to see ERISA as a target in some House and Senate bills, but that is the conversation right now as to perhaps the way to truly affect sort of benefit design changes is to perhaps go back through the employer in a more meaningful way, in a way that can't be accomplished through state capitals or state law, or maybe even the ACA itself. So that's the problem we're setting up for ourselves as a country is we've got a really rich benefit for our seniors now that as you improve that, it's gonna cause some problems over here for Medicare. And as you create a really rich benefit for our seniors, you're gonna position that in a very bright light to those of us that still get our healthcare from our employer as our employer-sponsored insurance, our premiums are up, our out-of-pocket caps are up, our networks are shrinking. And I think that's gonna be a real dynamic that faces Washington for many years to come as we continue to think about the various sources of how we access care. Wow, well, that's a, I can't say it's a ray of sunshine. But it's a lot to think about. <laughs> Scott and I are both approaching where we will be in Medicare. So I'm not sure it's going to be, you know, what's needed for the rest of the population. So Lance, we wrap up all of our sessions with the same question, which is, with all of this being said, what is your prescription for better access? Yeah, If you could wave a wand, what would you do, Lance? And I'd say access and affordability. Yeah, I would continue to try to test integrated care. There's something that still jumps out to me on integrated medical and pharmacy benefit, first and foremost. 
that, you know, could you have a unique benefit design, a unique benefit design that places risk corridors together or merges risk corridors into one? Now, the dynamic there, while that could change incentives from the plan PBM perspective, it could squeeze incentives between the payer and the network. So I'm not pro-capitation here in what I'm describing because the byproduct of integrated care could be narrower networks, coordinated care, capitation. As you try to merge your medical and your pharmacy and your hospital benefit into a single benefit design, you're going to have to then create carrots and sticks between the payer and the provider because those lines are also blurry. So I would encourage, you know, the Innovation Center to start to test coordinated care. And so this idea that I have a prescription drug benefit in Part D, I have a Medicare Advantage benefit in my MA, and my number one grower is MAPDP, but those two sort of benefits never really speak to each other other than at the plan sponsor is a real issue. And so testing a true integrated MAPDP to really look at sort of the interplay between outpatient, inpatient, prescription drug, and routine wellness starts to form as the first laboratory that we should test. And we've not seen the Innovation Center do that yet in a meaningful way with plan and provider participation. So we got to figure out the how to eliminate the incentives that exist because we have all these silos. And we have to do so in a very real way that doesn't just put a capitated price on things that starts to short care or short decisions at point of care. That's excellent. It goes to one of the themes that we've heard in the first seven episodes, which is at the end of the day, the benefit plan design needs to change. And I think you've just described it very well in terms of the impact of what integrated care and bringing all of these key stakeholders together in a different way could potentially do. So I love your prescription for better access. And so with that, since I'm talking, I'm going to throw it over to Scott to try to wrap up and offer some key takeaways from today's episode. Sure. Thanks. Well, first, Lance, thanks so much for joining us. It's more evident than ever how really complicated and complex all this is. Uh, and by complex, I mean having unknown elements as well, including many of the unintended consequences. This discussion has been another great example of that in healthcare. I'm struck by the tension that's being created actually by what's happening amongst the parties. It's, it's actually being increased pretty substantially. In my view, the PBMs are going on the hook for more exposure to the total cost. At the same time, the manufacturers are going to be paying higher rebates for Medicaid, higher rebates for Medicare. The PBMs are going to be looking ways for manage to manage their cost exposure down, like you mentioned about perhaps by more formula exclusions and even more aggressive utilization management. At the same time, the manufacturers are going to be scrambling to say, how do I improve my net prices, reduce my rebates or get better access? And there seems to me like we're setting up a real clash there between the parties that will probably create a number of winners and losers, I would guess. The irony of the clash between scientific advancement and our challenge of affordability, again, just comes through. The, the great science that's occurring is happening against this backdrop of like we're running out of our ability to continue to pay for it. And how's that going to shape the next 20, 40, 100 years of innovation, I'll say. And then lastly, it just it makes me stop and I think about like the way this policy comes together. It comes together... There's lots of thinking that goes on, but then there's like a window hap opens in D.C. where the politics align and something can be passed through. And that thing that gets passed through happens in a pretty short period of action, as we've seen. A lot of times through backroom negotiations and so on. And it just makes me wonder, with all this complexity, all these long-term unintended consequences, a real clash amongst the parties, a real clash in between science and affordability, is there a better way to do that? Do we need to have you know some form of a, a longer-term outlook that is backstopping these short periods where windows of policymaking open in our country? We, it seems like we could do better at making smart policy. So anyway, a lot there, Mark. I'm sure you've got some things to add as well. Well, I think you covered some great points. One of the things I think is the element of time. 
And that is that Washington doesn't work in like the market sometimes works. Washington is certainly looking out over a longer period of time. The ability to make an impact takes time, whether it's, as you said, the window to open. But by the way, when the window opens and legislation could get passed, then it's multiple years before there's guidelines and policy and everything is able to be set. And then they set the time period for something to be implemented. And so this window of time is long. And the other thing that I take away is how, when you step back, how truly the patient is not the focus of Washington. You know, they really aren't. And that's unfortunate. You know, President Biden launched the Moonshot Initiative for Cancer, and that's wonderful. And there are all these sort of uh, targeted efforts that they try to do. But at the end of the day, though, it's really not patient-centered. And I think that's unfortunate and something I'd love to see changed. And I know there's a lot of advocacy groups in Washington, a lot that spend more time in Washington. And that's something that we need to potentially get more involved in is making sure that the patient's voice, and again, there's some great, great groups out there that are starting to speak up. But Washington as a sort of this collective is not patient focused. And so I think that's unfortunate. And I also think that you mentioned briefly the unintended consequences, because this waterfall effect and something gets passed and and implemented. And then once it's done, the unintended consequences, whether it's like, like Lance said, go back and changes how manufacturers decide to develop a drug. That's just one element of unintended consequences. There's just dozens of these unintended consequences that when something gets moved into the market is you just don't know how it's going to play out. And so Anyways, I think that's a critical part of it. And then the final is how wonky all of this is. That word wonky is perfect for Washington and perfect for the two of you. And so let me just say thank you, Lance, for joining us today. And I can see why you continue to be such an expert on on D.C. and why you're doing so well and why Avalier is doing so well. And And also let me thank my incredible partner and Scott, who is the other side of why I have a co-host was because I wanted to get the smartest, wonkiest partner to compliment me. So anyway, so those are some of my thoughts. Great. Well, thanks, Mark. It's been wonderful doing another podcast with you. And thanks so much to Lance, our guest, uh, for a really insightful view about what's going on in D.C. Thank you, Lance. All right. With that, let's wrap up episode eight. Again, thank you, everybody. We're available and sign up on all your favorite podcasts. We now have a website, prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. You can see us on our new YouTube channel, which is maybe not getting a lot of play yet, but we're excited about the podcast and we have some great episodes coming up, including as we get through the summer into the fall. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you. Thank you.